We've been on a journey these last number of weeks, a journey of questions, big questions. Some, for some might be uncomfortable questions that maybe you wonder, hey, should we be asking that in church? Should we be talking about that in church? Our series called Ask Me Anything has, has led us down this, this, this journey, this path of questions about God, about Christianity, about life, about the Bible and Jesus. And if you haven't been able to hear uh, every one of these, these um, messages, I encourage you to go back and, and uh, get online or on our, uh, on our church app and, and listen to them because each stop in the journey is linked to the other, uh, the other parts and it's really leading us to the climax of next week with uh, Easter Sunday morning. This morning... As part of uh, what we've done, what we've already participated is an act that, that every follower of Christ continues to do in some form or another around the world. We've, we've taken a, a broken piece of bread and we've eaten it. We've, we've taken a cup of, of grape juice and we drank it together. Why? Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus directed us to do that. As we've, we've been reminded already this morning, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we do it. But how does eating bread and drinking from a cup remind us of Jesus? The bread is broken, and what does it represent? It represents the broken body of Jesus. The, the, the drink is red. What does it represent? It represents the blood of Jesus. What is Jesus asking us really to remember about him? His death. But not just the fact that he died. And there's, there are many ways to die. A few years ago on Good Friday, I preached a message on different ways to die. Um, my wife is very thankful I'm not repeating that message this morning. <laughs> but you can obviously die without, without your body being ripped apart as Jesus' was. You can, you can die without shedding any blood as Jesus did. Jesus is not just asking us to remember his death, but to remember the type of death he died. When you really stop to think about it, what, what we look to as the foundation of our Christian faith, what we look to as the very center of why we believe what we believe, it's brutal. It's horrific. It's bloody. And we sing songs about it. For centuries we have sung songs about the cross and the blood of Jesus. We're in the seniors' homes once a month in three different ones and, and we dig out the old hymns and many of those hymns. Like at the cross, there's power in the blood. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. Oh, I love that old cross. 
Stop and think about what you're singing. If you don't know anything about Christianity, you're walking by our seniors' home gathering, a staff at the seniors' home, and you, oh, I love that old cross. Get to the chorus, I will cling to the old rugged cross. What in the world? What is this really all about? Cling to a cross. Many people see the cross as the primary symbol of Christianity. Many people wear it around their necks on a necklace. Some ladies with earrings. Well, men too, maybe. Most churches have a cross somewhere around, on, or in their building. We have a large one out in front of our building that even lights up at night. It's pretty cool. But if you take a step back, why would we hold up the cross as a symbol of our faith? The cross is is actually an instrument of incredible brutality, of, of torture. It's gruesome and bloody. It was a means of execution by a a slow and painful death to publicly humiliate and send a message to onlookers to deter them from committing similar crimes. If you do this, you're going to end up there. And yet it's one of the primary symbols of Christianity. You know, I like the fish and the dove a little bit better. If you've been a Christian for for any length of time, and I asked you, can you tell me the gospel? What would you say? Well, the gospel is good news. And if I said, could you just wrap up the story of the gospel? You would say something like, Jesus is, is, is God come in the flesh. He's born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose to life on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is alive today. And that's the essence of the gospel. The story in a nutshell. But I want to ask this morning, why did Jesus have to die? Yes, we know he did die. As we were reminded last week, we know he was a real person, and we know he did die. But why did he have to die? And not only die, why did he have to die such a brutal death? Why the focus around this bloody event? And for many, it's a turnoff. It's a stumbling block. And if you're exploring Christianity or even, a, even skeptical, why would you be drawn to something so harsh, inhumane, and savage? The God of the Bible doesn't seem too much different than the vengeful gods of primitive time who need to be appeased by human sacrifice. What's the difference Gandhi, in his autobiography, said this, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. His death on on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart cannot accept, could not accept. Maybe you can relate with the words of Gandhi. Even some Christians stumble over the cross. Because if God is really a father and Jesus is a son, on the surface it sure looks a lot like child abuse, divine child abuse, even infanticide. 
So this is the question. This is the big question. Why did Jesus have to die? It's a great question. And maybe this isn't your question this morning, but it's important enough, I believe, to be confronted with it again and again, even if you've been a follower of Jesus for years. There are many ways to approach this question, but we're going to limit it to just one this morning. And otherwise, I could keep you literally here for days. This is how big this, this question is. Really, we could, most of what's in this book is about this question. We're going to limit it to this, this one approach, and, and to some extent, there, there's always going to be a little bit of a mystery around, uh, around this, because after all, we are trying to understand the eternal plan of a divine being. Let's go back to the beginning of what we know. And the beginning of what we know starts with the first verse in this book, and it says, in the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, why? Why did God create anything? What, what was the reasoning behind it? And throughout Scripture, it, it seems to point us to that God was demonstrating who he was. He wanted to reveal himself and who he was. And so the creation of the universe, the creation of time into, into billions of years speaks to his greatness and his power, his limitlessness. In the midst of all this vastness, he creates this relatively little blue ball that isn't even the center of anything. But on that ball we call earth, he creates life. Plant life, animal life, and laws that govern that life, that, that make it work, ecosystems, and mathematical laws of physics and chemistry. But then the final act of his creation was a man and a woman. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 says that humans were created in the very image of God. In his likeness, distinct from the rest of creation. In fact, giving them authority over the rest of creation. And when it was all said and done, God looked at all he had made and said not just that it was good, but it was very good. Very good. And if you look at even those two words, those two words speak to purpose and what was in the heart of God. He created and he looked at what he created and he said, wow, this is very good. Later in scripture, we begin to see that the essence of God is love. And he is in love with his creation. He loved what he created. And he created us in his image so, we, so that we have the capacity ourselves to, to relate to him. So that we have the capacity to love him back. And that was the image that was stamped on us. So what is love? Love I mean, we could go on and on about this too, but love is not a feeling, even, even though it does involve our feelings. 
What many of us call love is actually more passion or attraction, limited to the physical. But in the context of God and his creation, love is about relationship. It's about intimacy. It's about commitment. It's about giving oneself to another. The desire to know and be known. I love that definition of love. The desire to be known and to know. God has these desires towards his creation and to especially us as human beings. Love is a choice. It can't be forced or coerced. You can't... I I didn't go up to my wife and say, you have to love me. You know, that's not love. Love love is a choice, and, and love without choice is not love at all. In order to empower us as humans with the capacity to love, choice has to be in the equation. And in essence, this is the great risk that God took. He places man and women, woman in the garden, and in the center of the garden, he places choice. Just one choice. Ultimately between two trees, but the scripture says all the trees in the garden. In fact, God said, yes, you can eat all the fruit from all the trees in the garden. There's only one tree he said no to. There's only one rule, one law. And that was the instrument of choice. You can choose me or you can choose that. I said no to that. And Adam and Eve were free to obey God. They were, they were not, uh, they were free to obey God and not eat of the tree, but they were also free to disobey God and eat of the tree. They had freedom, freedom of choice. The consequences for eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was death. That was the consequence. Of course, we know what happened. The crafty serpent came along, and and the essence of what the serpent did was to cast doubt on the character and love of God. The serpent wrote in his own answer to the question of, why would God say no to that tree? And he began to fill in the blanks. He convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them. That God had said, what what God had said wasn't really true, that that God really didn't love them. That the fruit of the tree would make them like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve forgot that they were already created in the image of God. They were already like him. And they were convinced that, that God could not be trusted. They made the choice to cross the line and to disobey the one law. And in that one decision, they were introduced to death and to evil. Because God had given authority to mankind over all of creation, this one act of disobedience introduces evil 
to all of creation. Death, separation from God, separation from the source and the originator of life happens in a moment. All that God had created, all that God called good is suddenly stripped away from him. The goodness of God is tainted with the presence of evil. Every human, animal, from that moment on are born into a world of good and evil. We are his creation, but we are tainted with evil because of the choice to disobey. That choice to disobey is called sin. And evil is fueled by sin and has power over us. It keeps us separated from our creator who is good. Separation from the giver of life is death. And unless there's an intervention, unless something happens, all of humanity, all of creation continues on down that course of death into eternity. Because the father and mother of humanity chose disobedience over our creator. It continues to present God with a choice. God is above all. We sing it. We sing of it. He dwells outside of his creation. Really, he answers to no one because everything we know, everything we see, everything we touch has been created by him. His response to to our disobedience, our choice for greater knowledge, our doubting of his goodness could be for him to walk away. We chose something other than him, and his response could have been to choose something other than us. It could be for him to to rip the pages out of the book and start all over. And if he did, there'd be no one left to say, God, that's not right. He answers to no one. There's no one above him. However, he's always consistent with his character. And one of his characteristics is love. So here he is left with this dilemma. His entire creation has been stripped away from him by a choice of disobedience. Evil has been granted power in the world. Sin has taken grip, its grip over the hearts of all mankind. The creation that he loves has chosen to not love him in return. What can he do? Can he just forgive? Can he just wipe the slate clean? Couldn't have he just picked Adam and Eve up off the ground, cleaned them up and said, it's okay, I forgive you. You made a mistake. Understand. It seems like a solution on the surface. But there's another characteristic of God that can't be ignored. Without it, his love is meaningless. His love is powerless and is empty. And the other characteristic is that he's just. Love without justice is not love at all. 
As parents, um, whenever we set boundaries for our children, we usually set out some consequences for stepping over those boundaries. For disobedience, um, if you sit down for a meal as a family that includes peas on the plate, and Johnny doesn't want to eat his peas, what's a consequence for not eating your peas? Come on, parents, what's the typical consequence for not eating all the food on your plate? No dessert, exactly. No dessert. <laughs> Parenting tip number one. <laughs> Never state a consequence that you cannot or will not follow through with. Like, if I said, Johnny, if you don't eat your peas, you'll never eat dessert again for the rest of your life. Well, you know that's not going to be possible to fulfill. As a parent, if I consistently state this boundary and then always give in and give my child dessert without eating a piece, what does that say about who I am? Is my word reliable? Do I really mean what I say? Can I be trusted? Am I just? Do I really love my child? Now, if you do this, don't get hard on yourself because we've all blown it when it comes to that. But eating peas is one thing. But what if your spouse is in the parking lot of a grocery store and someone comes by with a gun and randomly shoots them dead? Eventually, the shooter is arrested and and brought to trial before the judge, and the judge comes with his verdict. And he says this, you know, I'm in a really good mood today. And I, I just love everything and everybody. I'm, I, I just love, I want to share that love. And so today, you're off the hook. Because I just don't feel like being mean to anyone today. And that's great for the shooter. Or maybe not. But what does that say about the value of your spouse's life? What does that say about the judge's view of himself and justice and the law? If God said the consequences to disobedient choice was death, then doesn't follow through with it. How can we trust anything he says? You can't even trust him really when you think about when he says, I love you. So what does God do? Evil's been released into his creation. Sin has stripped the objects of his love away from him. How can he bring justice to evil but still be true to his word? A few weeks back, Pastor Ryan mentioned this, the dilemma of God. 
God either gives up on the destruction of evil and ceases to be just, or he brings judgment on evil, but ends up destroying the ones he loves. You and I deserve death. You say, well, well Donald, I'm, I'm a good person. But in order for us to be good enough, we need to be as good as God. We need to have never been disobedient in anything. And this is impossible because we're already born into sin and evil. Before we even can make a conscious decision for good, we have disobeyed our parents. Do you remember the first time you disobeyed your parents? None of us do. Because we don't have a conscious recollection of it because it happened before then. But regardless, our parents... Parents, 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 right back to the original parents of Adam and Eve have all been born into sin. They've all disobeyed God. And if you break one, one syllable of the law, you're guilty and you're doomed. The reality is, is that we're all doomed. In and of ourselves, we are helpless because the world we are born into is sinful and dead in relationship to its creator. And without intervention, all of us will end up engulfed in the judgment of the disobedience that has captured all of creation. So what is God to do? He walks away and leaves us to the choice that we have made, believing the serpent over him. But he can't walk away because he loves his creation. He loves us. And if he continues to love us, he has to bring judgment to evil and sin through death. Otherwise, his word is powerless and his love is meaningless. There's a third option. I love third options. If you get into conflict, always look for the third option. Always look for the third option. Someone can pay the penalty of death on behalf of someone else. This is possible. Justice can still be satisfied and the guilty can still be set free. But with humanity in relationship to God, there's still a problem. If everybody who has ever lived is caught in sin, if there is no one as good as God, then there is no one who is sufficient to die for someone else. Because if I die for you, I can't die for you because I sinned. And if I die for sin, it's going to be for my own sin. I can't put myself in your position because if I die, it's for my own sin. It's a hopeless situation, again, unless there is a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice comes in the person of God himself. 
He didn't turn away from creation, but in his great plan before creation even began, he was willing to step into creation himself, become a man in Jesus, not born in the sin carried down from parent to parent, but conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. Jesus lived the sinless life that is impossible for anyone else. He surrendered his life in death on behalf of every other human born and will ever be born. He was innocent. He was the spotless lamb of God whose pure and divine blood was the only thing of great enough value to fulfill his own justice. John the Baptist called him, introducing him. Here is Jesus, the lamb of God. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You look back at the Old Testament, it, it it begins to paint this picture for us to, to understand what needed to happen. When there was disobedience, blood needed to be shed. A spotless lamb, uh, blood needed to be shed. The spotless lamb died in the place of the sin of the person who gave the lamb. But it was only temporary. That sacrifice needed to happen again and again with every sin that was committed. One sacrifice for one sin. In reality, when you think about it, it became impossible. It was insufficient. If it was one sacrifice for one sin, if I had to sacrifice once for every one of my sin, my full-time job would be raising a flock of sheep and hoping that I have enough spotless ones because every day I would probably have to take one down to the temple and sacrifice it if it's one uh, lamb for every sin. It's incomplete. It really becomes impossible. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If it was possible... The priests in the Old Testament, they, they would have been unemployed. They would have had nothing to do because you would just need to sacrifice once and it be done. The perfect person comes along. In Jesus, he has no debt to pay for himself. There is no penalty of sin that he owes and he willingly surrenders his life. Moments before his death, Jesus is in conversation with the Roman prefect Pilate, the person who appears to have authority to set Jesus free. And Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? And what's Jesus' response? You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Jesus was innocent. He was pure. He wasn't dying for his own sin, but for the sin of us all. He sur willingly surrendered himself to it. But why did he need to suffer? Why did his blood need to be shed? Why did he go through the torture and the anguish and the pain beforehand. 
Why did he not just have to die, but die by the slowest, painful, gruesome, humiliating, and public forms ever in history? Again, Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins of all time, he took it all. Jesus took it all. He paid for it all publicly. From the smallest sin to the biggest, from the first sin to the last, the last sin that will ever be committed, Jesus paid for it right then and there. Jesus bore the penalty of death for every sin of every person that has or will ever live, including you and me sitting here this morning. He had to go deeper than the deepest depths of evil there could ever be so that not one human being is left out. He willingly joined himself with the same violence, oppression, grief, weakness, and pain that any of us will ever experience. And that is the depth and power of his love for you. That's why Jesus was in agony in the garden. That's why he was asking his father, is there any other way? As an innocent man, he was about to pay the price for the penalty of disobedience for all of humanity and really all of creation. He was about to correct the choice that the parents of humanity made against him. No other religion even comes close to viewing God in this way. It wasn't a divine being finding a, a whipping boy and, and, and pouring out his wrath upon him. It was God himself becoming the solution to our impossible problem. Jesus could have pulled up at the last second. He could have saved himself. And there's an old song that said he could have called 10,000 angels, destroyed the world, and set himself free. He didn't have to do it. He did not have to do it except the love in his heart for you and me compelled him to do it. If in the midst of that he would have blamed and hated Pilate, or, or the Roman soldiers that, that swung the hammers for the nails, if he would have even, even been hatred in his heart towards the religious leaders, he would have disqualified himself as the perfect innocent sacrifice, the only sacrifice that was sufficient. But no, what did he do? What did he say in response? One of his last words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The soldiers were just crucifying another criminal. They didn't care. They were just doing their job. 
But they didn't know they were putting, putting the poor and innocent on the altar of God for their own sin. His divine blood was spilled out on this earth as evidence of complete payment. Complete payment. To show the enemy once and for all, to show all of humanity that it is finished. He didn't swoon, he died. And his blood stands as evidence of that. God's judgment, wrath, and punishment were satisfied by willingly bearing it himself in the person and body of Jesus. I love Tim Keller in his book says this, On the cross neither justice nor mercy loses out, but both are fulfilled at once. 1 Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Why did Jesus have to die? So everyone in this room, everyone listening to this message this morning, everyone in the city of Nanaimo, everyone on this planet is doomed to a death separate from God unless Jesus dies. My question to you this morning is, do you need salvation? Do you believe that you deserve death? And I think even if we are followers of Christ, do we really believe that we deserve death? Do you recognize that you were born into sin and have sinned? Do you believe that you have acted in disobedience to God and the creator of all things? God believes this. And out of his great love for you, he didn't walk away. He didn't destroy, but he made a way. He made a way of escape. He carved a path to life that cost him everything he had. Everything he had. He made a choice. Love is still a choice. God made his and continues to make his choice. Love is still a choice for you. You still have to choose Jesus as your Savior. He's made it possible, but are you convinced in your need to be saved? If you're convinced that you can make it on your own, that you're good enough, that being a good person will get you there, then let me ask you just this one question. Why did God come down in the flesh? And willingly subject himself to such great punishment for you if you didn't need it. If his sacrifice was simply a loving example, Jesus threw his life away. 
He did it for you because it was absolutely necessary. There is no other way. There is no other way. There is no other way. You cannot separate the love of God from the cross. You cannot separate the love of God from the cross. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've already put your trust in him for salvation, I encourage you this morning, revisit the cross. Revisit the cross. What Jesus did on the cross for you and for humanity on an infinite scale, we need to live out every day. Every day. And do it for others. Do it for those around us. This is a story about you and it will always be for eternity about what Jesus did for you. What Jesus did for you. Can we just close this morning? I'm just wondering if, if you could just take a moment and I know we're, we're running a little late here. You just close your eyes for a moment. And this morning, I'm going to dismiss you in a moment, but if you want to take a few more moments and just allow the reality of the cross to settle in over you again. I encourage you to do that. Our prayer team is going to come for those who, who want someone to pray, pray for them. Or if you just want to sit where you're at for a few moments and just allow the reality of the truth of the love of God to wash over you again. Come back to that place of of accepting the cross. But if you're here this morning and you're wondering and you haven't made that choice yet, I encourage you this morning to open your heart. And all you have to do is say, yeah, I, 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 I recognize I deserve death. I have sinned. But Jesus, I look to you and I accept what you have done for me. I accept your sacrifice for my sin. And I thank you. And you will experience the crazy love of God. You will experience the overwhelming love of God as you open your heart and receive him. Can we stand together and let's just close with this song. And I know there's, there's coffee and tea out there waiting for you. And, and please, you're, you're, you're free to go. You're dismissed to go. And this isn't about being, being more spiritual and by staying. This isn't about that. But what it, What's going on in your heart right now? What do you need to respond to? Don't ignore that. Don't ignore that tug. Don't ignore 
what you sense in your heart. If you need to take a few moments, if you need to just sing this song and declare it for a few minutes, please do that. Respond because what you're sensing is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And allow it to touch you. Allow him to revive this truth within you and to change you. As we sing, would you come? Find a place where you're at. Even if you want to come and you want to just kneel down here for a minute or two, please do that. God bless you.